Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, coming to you from Gadigal Land. This is ABC News Daily. As we take a break this summer, we're looking back at some of our favourite episodes of the year that covered the issues that really mattered to you. Today, the housing crisis. Whether you're a renter or paying off a mortgage, millions of Australians are feeling the pinch. For one possible solution to the problem, we turned to the Scandinavian model. People who live in housing co-ops, they feel it's a home and they feel it's their own which is very different to when you rent privately in Australia. But maybe they've got it right in Japan. So Tokyo and Japan in general is quite unique because Tokyo actually doesn't have a housing shortage. But first up, prices are high, yet vacancies are low. So who is buying up all the properties? We talked to business reporter Nassim Kadem about the cashed up buyers pushing up our house prices. This story originally aired in August. Nassim, this has been the fastest cycle of interest rate hikes in a generation. Higher interest rates have put huge pressure on lots of borrowers and it's made it harder for buyers to get into the market. But strangely, house prices are rising at the same time. So there are still people out there buying. First call at 145. Although prices fell initially, they've actually been rising for several months across the country. You know, and, and let's go back to the start of this year or before the start of this year, where some economists were saying, oh, there's going to be drops of 10% in house prices, 20%. We've not seen that. Mm. Uh, And, you know, house prices are back past their peaks in some cities. So this is making it tough for a lot of people, but not everyone is struggling to break into the property market. So prices are rising partly because there are these people who can afford to buy. Who are they? So real estate agents that I spoke to are seeing demand from a few groups. Firstly, it's partly from baby boomers who are downsizing as their kids leave home Mm -hmm. and they approach retirement. I spoke to a gentleman, Thomas Lindemann, him and his wife recently purchased a four-bedroom home in Melbourne's East for $1.6 It's a smaller home, but they purchased in cash after Mm. selling their bigger family home. We're retirees, so, uh, you know, we are now our own property. And, you know, we've sold that, so uh, that's half of the equation for us to solve. Uh, And then there's data from PEXA that shows that about one quarter of homes sold in the eastern states last year were bought without mortgages. So that is that they paid outright in cash, and that's partly because of those retirees selling their bigger homes to buy smaller ones. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Nice to be able to pay cash. (laughs) Not many of us can do that. Right. So retirees who've made a lot of money from their homes, that does make sense that they can go out and sort of downsize and pay cash for those homes. But who else is getting into the market right now? Yeah, there are also young first home buyers, but they're being helped out by their parents. So this is known informally as the bank of mum and dad. Uh-huh. For me, getting into the market was a struggle. Um, definitely need to help on some help from mum and dad a little bit, um, but lots of work. 
another cohort we're seeing is foreign buyers, mm-hmm. and they're mainly coming from China and Hong Kong. And then there's migrants. So migrations running at almost double pre-pandemic levels with net migration of about 400,000 people this year. And many of those who can afford to buy homes are those moving to Australia on business visas. Mm -hmm. So they come here on temporary visas, they come equipped with up to half a million dollars in savings and that's a requirement of their visa to have enough money to set up a business. Mm. And then rather than rent, they spend some of the money they've saved on buying residential property. At least that's what Helia Singh, a wealth coach and former mortgage broker in Perth told me. Uh, My clients are coming from um, China and also from Iran as well as uh, Brazil. Uh, most of them, they are uh, skilled migrant and also they are coming here as a business visa holder. And the high cost of housing, especially in capital cities like Sydney and Melbourne, haven't deterred your wealthy overseas buyers. I spoke to Peter Lee. He's a real estate agent in Chatswood in Sydney. He says Chinese parents are funneling cash into Mm. Australia in increments so their children who come to study here can buy homes. Oh, the mom and dad bank of Chinese students are very rich. (laughs) And he says about 20% of his firm's clients are overseas buyers from mainland mainland China, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Indonesia, who are wealthy. Uh, And he says that inquiries from this group of overseas uh, buyers has increased by 30% over the past year to date, and he expects it to continue to increase. So just tell me, Nassim, how big a difference are foreign buyers making to the prices we're seeing here for housing? So the official data suggests that foreigners account for a small fraction of purchases by number. Mm -hmm. A Treasury official told the Senate, uh, told Senate estimates that in 2021-22 financial year, less than 1% of residential sales went to overseas buyers. Mm -hmm. But the value is still pretty high. If we look at more recent figures, by value, it was almost $6 billion between July last year and this March. And as I said earlier, China is by far the biggest source of that cash followed by Hong Kong buyers. And demand's, you know, expected to rise. There's data suggesting Chinese demand for Australian and other international real estate will increase as uh, Chinese nationals have a large pool of savings to invest. Invest Like in the first nine months of last year alone, official statistics show that Chinese saving deposits soared in value by almost $5.5 trillion. Are there actually Nassim rules in place to control foreign investment or can you just come here and buy a house if you want to? No, there there are far higher taxes for foreigners, uh-huh. and these taxes have been going up over time. So, at the moment, uh, the f- federally you have to pay fees to the Foreign Investment Review Board, and they start at three thirteen, a bit more over thirteen thousand for residential property purchases of one million or less, and they rise over increments as the home gets more expensive. And then there's also uh, the fact that non-residents must pay far higher stamp duty to state governments. But what we're seeing is lots of people are actually willing to pay that because they figure that the cost of renting is so high anyway and they you know, want to establish permanent residency in Australia anyway. So buying a home here takes them a step closer to that. Mm, and as part of your job, Nassim, I mean, you head out to auctions, you're watching the market. It's not pretty, is it? 
No, I mean, I was kind of standing at these auctions thinking, who are these people? And I, I realized it's really, it's really the generation thing, right? It's the older people who've bought their properties and now have money behind them, have superannuation behind them. Uh, and, you know, this is an issue that, uh, governments are really grappling with. And, you know, the answers are complicated. Nassim Kadem is a reporter with the ABC business team. So Australia's in the middle of a severe housing crisis, but did it really need to be this way? If you look to Scandinavia, the answer is no. Now, Dr Sidel Grimstad from Griffith Uni on the cooperative housing networks in Denmark, Sweden and Norway that mean barely anyone's left homeless and how they could work here too. This story originally aired in August. Cecil, many Australians are really finding it difficult at the moment when it comes to housing. And to understand how we got here into this rather tricky situation, we really need to go back to the end of World War II when there was a real boom in the number of houses that we were building. Just tell me about that time in Australia and what was happening in housing. Well, like in in most countries after the Second World War, there was a a big housing boom. And in Australia, the government embarked on huge housing construction schemes throughout all the states, really. In this way, the Commonwealth Reconstruction Training Scheme is helping to solve the gigantic housing problems. But also, it was also supported through the uh, what we call cooperative building societies where people would be saving money and then being able to get access to funding to build their own house or or buy houses. Mm -hmm. And these were reasonably priced, so accessible for everybody, really. The social housing sector um, eventually has kind of become minuscule because they were sold off. That took them out of the social housing sector. And so uh, the number or the percentage of social housing now is very, very low. The Scandinavian countries, they went in a different way, didn't they? Let's have a look first at Norway. Well, in in all the three, uh, in Norway, Sweden and Denmark, there was a similar huge housing boom uh, after the Second World War because the governments wanted to provide, you know, decent quality housing, but they didn't want to promote private rental. They said private rental leaves their tenant very weak. So they opted for what they called housing cooperatives, which is, you can call it a co-ownership. So um, you had developers that would build a big building. The, when the, Once the building was finished, Each building was then organized as a cooperative. So the co-op would own the building and then families would then buy a membership and in a way buy a flat in that co-op. So in a sense, you have a co-ownership between the member owning the flat and the co-op that owns the building. In Sweden, which is the country that has the largest cooperative housing sector, it's 25 
4% of the housing stock. In Norway, it's 14%. But for instance, in Oslo, where I'm from, um, housing co-ops comprise 40% of all housing in Oslo, the capital. Gosh, that's a lot. Yeah. And in Denmark, they chose a slightly different model. They said, well, not all people can own a housing co-op flat or house. So we're going to have a different model where we have housing rental housing co-ops, which is affordable housing. And that sector is huge in Denmark. It's around 20% of all housing stocks. Mm. And what about the tenants' rights in those co-ops? Because a big problem here, of course, that we have is that, you know, tenants feel like they're not protected enough. Yeah. Well, um, in a housing co-op, and that this is what makes it a unique model and very, very different to private rental, for instance, is that your tenure is secure. You can't be, what should I say, thrown out of a co-op mm. unless, of course, you do something, you know, you don't pay your rent at all or you you do other things that, of course, is, is antisocial. But tenants can um, participate in setting the rent, for instance, if they want to. And this is quite an interesting model, is that part of that rent, a tiny part, goes to a national housing building fund. Mm. And this fund now, because this arrangement has lasted for, you know, decades, this fund is a substantial fund and makes it possible to continue constructing new rental housing co-ops in a way in perpetuity. So, Cecil, what about the co-op houses you actually have to buy? How do they work? So the difference between then a co-op flat that you own is that, first of all, it can't be used as an investment object. You have to live in it. There's also strict regulation around letting it out. You can't really um, let them out and you can't also use them for Airbnb. They sound great, but tell me, Cecil, how are they financed? Because I guess the, the point for investors is why do you want to put money into something if you're not going to have a lucrative sort of return? So housing co-ops, they are now so large that they, in a sense, have their own funds. Mm. And because they have their own funds, they can access cheaper finance options. But the big thing here is that in external investors, they look for, uh, what should I say, cheap investment options and not, you know, for maximum profit investors, so to speak. And any surplus they get through their construction is then plowed back into the sector and then so that you can build more housing. Okay. So, Cecil, tell me, how has this co-op approach stood the test of time since the end of World War II? I would say it has stood the test of time very well. What I find really interesting is that the security of tenure is so fundamental to creating good, you know, just living conditions and good communities. Mm. We know in Australia more and more people are dependent on private rental and we forget how detrimental moving around mm. if you're a family and having to move every six months is is detrimental not only for the person but the whole family yes. and the children's schooling and so on the success in a sense of the co-op model is that there's more rights to the tenant mm. people who live in housing co-ops they feel it's a home and they feel it's their own 
if it's both affordable and you are actively involved in creating your own living space, I think those are two social benefits that, you know, we really need more of in Australia. Dr. Cecil Grimster is a senior lecturer at the Centre for Systems Innovation at the Griffith University. The co-op idea sounds nice, but is it all greener pastures overseas? How would you like to live in an apartment barely big enough to fit a double bed or a complex where you share a bathroom with six other units? In cities like Tokyo, New York and London, it's not an uncommon way to live. So as we grapple with the rental crisis here, how do we compare globally? Reporter Angelique Liu looked into it. This story originally aired in May. So we leveraged our correspondents all over the world, our correspondent in London, Nick Dole, Dave McMillan in New York and James Oaten in Tokyo and myself in Sydney. And we kind of gave ourselves a challenge to see if we could find an affordable place to live for 30% of the household income in that city, just as a control, because that's what's recommended for people mm-hmm. as an acceptable, affordable expenditure on housing costs, especially if you're low income. For this task, I've been given 30% of the median London household income, a budget of £253 per week. That means I've got the smallest amount of money to spend in this challenge, about 420 Australian dollars a week, or 40,000 yen. I've been given 612 Australian dollars to find a place to live. Let's start here in Sydney, though, because you were actually tasked with finding a rental property here in Sydney and you had that 30% metric to play with. You know what? I think I probably had the hardest city to do this in. So Sydney is the most expensive city to rent in Australia. It's followed by Canberra, Brisbane, Darwin, and then Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And the budget that I was given is a household budget of $620 a week. Mm. That's a household income. So that means it's usually about two people. So I looked in Dulwich Hill. Okay, so you're going to love this one. It's a two-bedroom Art Deco apartment. It's on the top floor of just two apartments. It's got heaps of natural light. So I did find somewhere that was walkable distance to the train station. It had two bedrooms and a bathroom and access to a yard. And that was about $540 a week. Mm. But the bathroom, you know, it was, I think the real estate agent said it was an original bathroom. All right. But Dulwich Hill, that's in the inner west of Sydney. So it's pretty central. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, it does sound pretty good. But The rental conditions in Australia are quite challenging. You know, leases from six to 12 months uh, are quite common. It's really rare to get long leases and so security is quite tough. Another thing to think about is also competition. You know, supply across Australia is at record, record lows. And so even when I was looking at this place in Dulwich Hill, Mm. there were probably about a dozen parties looking and that property was leased out immediately after inspection. Okay, so Angelique, now take me to New York City. Uh, So we sent Jade McMillan to New York and she had a budget of 612 Australian dollars a week. So she found a place in Greenwich Village in New York and it was 14 square metres. And it's quite challenging to visualise, but I just want you to imagine basically a double bed and that's basically the flat. Oh, gosh. 
Yeah, you know what's the most like outrageous thing? So the bathroom was shared between six oh units. Oh my gosh. And the reason I say six units is that you're not necessarily sharing with six people. It could be couples as well. So you could be sharing a bathroom and shower with up to 12 people. So Jade had to go further afield to look for something a bit more spacious. This is kind of like an ordinary share house, except there's a total of 160 people living in this building split into four bedroom units. She found something, a shared living space in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. There's a shared living area, kitchen and two bathrooms. The private space, the bed is quite high up and you, you, know, you have to climb up a ladder to get into the bed and the couch is underneath. And you know what the most outrageous thing is? That was still over her budget. So basically she really can't afford anywhere decent in New York City on that budget. It's impossible. So take me then to London. I wonder if it's any better there, actually. Well, you know, you're no stranger to the London no. rental market. No. Um, but uh, our current uh, London correspondent, Nick Dole, he was given a budget of 500 Australian dollars a week to spend on rent. 500 Australian dollars a week doesn't take you very far in London. Mm -mm. So... He did find a place. It was in East London. Judging by the pictures, it does look a little bit rough around the edges, but I think I am going to have to sacrifice a bit to get something that's within budget. It was a short walk to the shops and public transport, but really, so the bathroom had no uh, shower, oh. so it was just a bathtub. There was no mirror. Oh Small but functional. Small but functional. Let's test it out. Let's see. Uh, does the job. It works. <laughs> the the place wasn't totally painted. You know, obviously the real estate agent was very optimistic. It's like you can make your place your own, and uh, I think there was no built-in wardrobe. So you know, there was like paint missing. <sighs> But, you know, it comes under budget at $415 a week. Gosh, good. <laughs> I'm glad it's under budget because it sounds like it should be. What's the other catch to it all? So this property that Nick found is under something called guardianship. Mm -hmm. So the reason this place was so cheap at $415 a week is that it's scheduled to be redeveloped. So right. this building can be demolished at any point. He did find another place, though. It's at Heathrow Airport, which is a little bit out of London. But look, there's always a catch with these sorts of things. So the reason that that property with their three bedrooms and three bathrooms is so cheap, it's part of a scheme called London Living Rent. You have to qualify for the scheme. And so you have to have a household income of less than £60,000. And it's incredibly competitive. So again, nothing's guaranteed. Yeah, right. So there's catches all over the place. All right. So London and New York City sound pretty tough. What about Tokyo? Tell me about that. So we sent James Oten to Tokyo. With more than 39 million people, Greater Tokyo is the most popular city in the world. And, you know, Tokyo is quite notorious for having small and packed apartments, as you can imagine. And also he had a little bit of a harder time than us because incomes are a bit lower mm -hmm. compared to the other cities we've been to. So he had the lowest budget. He had a budget of 420 Australian dollars a week. He did find somewhere that was slightly above that price. It was... 32 square metres, which mm -hmm. is double the size of what Jade found in Greenwich. Yeah, let's have a look. Here we are. Yeah, take off shoes in the front of the apartment because that's what you do in Japan. Yeah. Just keep them right there. And uh, first off, you'll notice it's a little bit, well, cramped. Small. But, it, you know, it's pretty small by the Australian standards. It had a tiny bathroom. And is this one of those fancy Japanese toilets? Yes, this one is. And it was in the heart of the action as well. 
He went out an hour's drive from the city centre and he found a two-bedroom place for about $383. So it's an hour's drive, so it's a little bit out of town. But what makes Tokyo unique is that it does have good public transport. So you can get into the city centre in half an hour. Well, let's stay then, Angelique, on Tokyo because it sounds like James may have had a slightly easier run of it with trying to find a rental property than the correspondents in London and New York and within a smaller budget. So it sounds like they're doing something right in Tokyo. So Tokyo and Japan in general is quite unique because Tokyo actually doesn't have a housing shortage. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, this has been attributed to uh, the fact that Tokyo has a much simpler zoning laws than most other Australian cities. They have 12 zones. So homes and apartments can be built in all of the zones except one, which is the business zones. And there's also no laws about minimum sizes for apartments. So, you know, they can be as small as 15, 10, even 8 square metres, which is very small, yeah. So Tokyo doesn't have a problem with supply. So does it win this global race, do you think, in the rental battle? You know what? I have to say, I think Australia comes out looking quite good. So overall, we're definitely going through a rental crisis here in Australia. But as we've seen, this is a problem that's happening all over the world. We should thank our lucky stars if we have a shower, by the sounds of it. Yes, I think so. I think so. Or maybe not in th- impending threat of demolition, maybe. Who knows? But uh, yeah, it's, a, it's quite grim out there, I think. Angelique Liu is a reporter based in Sydney. We explored a lot of housing and renting issues in 2023 on ABC News Daily. If you like these episodes, you'd also like the episode What Renting is Doing to Your DNA?, where we spoke to Emma Baker, a professor of housing research at the University of Adelaide. Here's a teaser. I mean, you can't really think about anything else. It's just looking at the units, scheduling inspections. It's crazy to get anywhere. I know heaps of people who have lived out of their cars or are constantly trying to find somewhere to go. So I was actually homeless for 14 months. I applied for 472 houses in my last year of being homeless. I don't know what to do in the circumstances with my three children. It's going to be the point where I will be living in my car with my children, hungry and homeless. Mm, And that's all quite stressful. And a study that you were involved in shows if you rent, you could be ageing more quickly. So let's unpack that. First, we need to understand the difference between chronological age and biological age. Tell me the difference, first of all. Yeah. Well, so we all age at the same rate of years. Mm -hmm. And so that's our chronological age. It's our number of birthdays that we've had. But there's this additional thing which takes into account the kind of life that you lead and the things that you do and are exposed to. And we call that biological age because if you drink too much or smoke or, you know, live in a high pollution area, it's likely to affect the kind of healthiness that you have over the long term. So we call that biological age. Right, okay. And this study that you were involved in is looking at the link between biological ageing and renting. Yeah, well, in fact, we looked more broadly than renting mm-hmm. to start with. So we're, a lot of our work is trying to pull apart the effects of housing in all, all of its kind of characteristics 
on our health. And in this piece of analysis, we looked at people's biological age measured through their blood and a whole range of different things that we thought might explain differences in biological age and also a whole lot of things about their housing characteristics. Okay, you better explain a bit more about the blood. (laughs) And what did you actually do? It really is one of the very first pieces of research in this kind of new area looking at epigenetic ageing. We use a, a big United Kingdom data set which follows people over really long periods of time, 20 or so years. So we know all of their characteristics and all of the things that are going on in their life. Every year they get revisited and surveyed. And about halfway through this survey, they took a series of blood samples which they then went off and measured for the markers of age. So, you know, basically biological ageing is the scarring of your body and your DNA, which may be faster than other people. So we do bloods in the middle and then continue on housing afterwards. So we can then control for all of the things that are going on in people's lives and look at their relative rate of biological ageing in the middle. Okay. As I understand it, you have around 1,400 adults participating. So halfway through a longitudinal study looking at them, you collect blood and that blood can indicate to you someone's biological age. Is that right? Yeah. So when we look at their blood, you know, we see regardless of chronological age, some people are ageing faster than others. And, you know, one of the things that really stood out to us was that, you know, all of the things that we think in, say, public health messaging, you know, things like smoking and uh, drinking and obesity, they are very similar in their effect size to things like living in a rental home or not being able to afford your rent. But one of the things that really stood out was people who live in a rented home compared to people who are homeowners seem to be ageing faster biologically. Right. You can find that episode from November in the ABC Listen app. Just search ABC News Daily. It's in the feed. That's it for this special episode of ABC News Daily podcast will be back with new episodes daily from the 29th of January. Follow the show on the ABC Listen app.